Welcome to Tech Explorations Podcast Episode 1. Yes, this is the very first episode of this new podcast from Tech Explorations. In this episode, Peter Dalmaris talks with George Katz. George has been making things ever since he can remember. As a child, he used to make paper models of all kinds of things until his parents bought him a two-transistor radio kit. From that point, he was interested in all things electronic. He studied electronics in high school and later completed his degree in computer engineering from University of New South Wales. He enjoyed the course because it combined electronics with software and so that computers would interact with the real world. There, he also became interested in robotics and built a number of research robots for his thesis and for the AI department for other students to use. After university, his day work was on developing software for various companies, but electronics remained his hobby. About 13 years ago, he saw an episode of Mythbusters that featured water rockets. Searching online, he discovered a whole world of DIY makers that made rockets and posted instructions on how to do that. George talked to his father and within three hours they had built a launcher and launched the first rocket in the backyard. From that point on, the whole family was hooked on building ever more complex and higher performing rockets. They also joined the local rocketry club, NSWRA, which opened a whole new world of like-minded individuals with a lot of experience in the field to learn from. To this day, George and his family still very much enjoy the engineering challenge of building and flying rockets. He uses his electronics knowledge for rocketry payloads and ground launch equipment. Though he occasionally does fly solid propellant rockets, his passion still is building water rockets. Both of George's teenage boys are also a great help with all respects of the hobby. George shares his experiences as much as possible online and runs a website with instructional videos as well as launch and experiment reports. The website contains many of the hard-to-find details about water rockets so that others can learn from his successes and mistakes the same way people shared the knowledge with him when he started out. This is Tech Explorations Podcast, Episode 1. The Tech Explorations Podcast is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. No surprises there. My mission is to share the stories of makers and learn from them. I simply want to explore why and how makers do what they do. Let's welcome George and hear his story now. George Katz, very happy to see you on a Tech Explorations podcast. How are you today? Great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, hopefully this will be an interesting conversation. Well, based on uh, a few things that we discussed already as we were warming up for this, uh, I think we are going to have a very interesting conversation. Um, well, before actually we get to the really, really cool stuff, or actually maybe I should say hot stuff, let's talk a little bit about you and maybe you could give us an, an introduction. And I should uh, say to people that are watching us on YouTube or on video that unfortunately you don't have a webcam that's working. So we'll do the next best thing. and. Put your picture on <laughs> so that people know who you are and what you look like. So there you go. Uh, could you take a few minutes and tell us about yourself and um, what led you to where you are now? And actually, what do you do now? Okay. Um, so basically, ever since I can remember, I've been interested in making things. Uh, when I was young, I used to make things out of sort of paper, made paper models of all sorts of things. And then one day, mum and dad bought me this two transistor radio kit. Uh, it had springs to join wires together and I put this together in about half an hour and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I can hear music out of just a few bits. And that's really what kicked me off in getting interested in electronics. Um, and I, so I persisted with that uh, through high school. We had a really good electronics teacher. Uh, sort of my interest grew more and more. more. I steered more towards sort of the digital electronics. I was mm. interested in computers, getting computers to do things at that time. And then uh, I ended up doing a computer engineering degree at University of New South Wales. Yeah. Uh, and that was uh, also a great course because it sort of married both software and hardware. 
um, sort of there was a, a gap that was identified within sort of the curriculum that that's something that should be taught. Um, and so during that course, I also became interested in robotics. So I started building robots uh, both at home and I ended up building one for my thesis. Uh, and then when I finished my thesis, uh, my supervisor actually um, contracted me to build them another robot for the AI department for other students. So, so that, that was kind of the best of both worlds. I was doing what I want, wanted to do. Yeah. But the problem was there is, wasn't a lot of sort of work after uh, university to do with robotics or electronics and sort of, so I steered more towards the software side of things as a software developer. But electronics has always remained my hobby, so I continued that uh, just on my own time. But uh, probably about 13 years ago, uh, I saw an episode of Mythbusters and they were featuring a, a water rocket. And I thought, hmm, this looks pretty interesting. So I um, looked up online and there was all of these people building water rockets that were providing instructions on how to do that. And I, so I called up Dan and says, look, we've got to have a go. We've got to build one of these. And so the next day I went over to dad's workshop and we built within three hours a launcher and we launched our first bottle rocket. And from that day on, we were hooked because of the sort of very simple construction, but the sort of performance you got out of this thing was, was quite impressive. And from that point on, we just started building ever more complex rockets um, and pushing sort of uh, for higher performance. We were um, building multi-stage rockets and that hasn't really stopped in the last 13 years. So we're now building some sort of really high-end rockets. Uh, I see you're looking at the website. So it's something like the Dark Shadow, um, just in the index at the top. Um, Dark Shadow. There you go. Did you uh, pick up the name? So this is one we just actually flew a few <laughs> days ago again. Uh, this is a, a high-pressure water rocket, uh, and we ended up setting our new personal best altitude record with this one uh, at uh, 2,269 Ooh. feet. So this is uh, your life now. Uh, you this are a professional pretty much has taken over the entire uh, household, yeah. and <laughs> and all of my spare times used uh, taken up in in water rockets. What uh, like, what's the title that you go by? Is like a water rocket engineer? Oh uh, no! So uh, we've our team's called Air Command Water Rockets. Um, so that that's what we fly the rockets yeah. under and also what our website is and what we try and do is we try and share all of the things that we learn uh, as well as the failures um, so that others can learn from that uh, when we first started it was uh, really important for us to be able to learn from others and we thought we'd return some of that knowledge that we've gained over the years yeah i was looking through your website and i noticed that you have four details of the builds i think Correct. here you've got uh, let's have a look at the shadow for example you've got day by day mm -hmm. uh, what you do i'll zoom in a little here so this started the design on the 13th of july and then you know, pcv pipes and then you show the workshop process is mm -hmm. this like your workshop or do you go uh, somewhere to build these that's right so we, yeah. i've pretty much taken over the most of underneath the house in the garage and sort of a couple of workshops that we have there uh, but we use the website not only to inform other people but it's kind of our logbook as well so if we yeah. ever need to go back and see a particular technique how we did something we go back and refer to this material um, it's your public record it, it, that's exactly right um, so maybe um, go back a little bit to your university years. Uh, you mentioned that you, know, you you were into robotics. That's what you wanted to do, and mm -hmm. uh, you loved robotics. Could you tell us a little bit about the robot that you built um, for your uh, supervisor or professor in uh, university? So it was a, a mobile robot. So basically, a, a mobile box. It was equipped with a couple of cameras, so that it was used for doing vision research for navigation. Mm -hmm. Um, and that it was really an open platform, so it had a PC at that time, um, so that the students could put on uh, any type of software that they wanted, uh, but they didn't have to worry about the hardware. So I, I wrote uh, libraries for them to interface to, to uh, allow them to control oh. the cameras, the, the motion, the sensors, um, and then they would write the algorithms that they wanted uh, on top of that. It was that like um, based on a Raspberry Pi? 
or something else, oh, like no, a PC. No. Was, it it was, was way before those things, right? Yeah. yeah. So things were um, really hard back then. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so the, the microcontroller there was uh, 68HC11 um, that controlled all the low-level stuff. Uh, and it was like, I think, at 486 at the time running mm -hmm. the, the the software on the robot. So less, less powerful than the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, um, for those days. And the video must have been particularly like challenging to make. Uh, yeah, so we used order. like a, a thing that was called a video blaster at the time that yeah. could uh, digitize video. It was a specialist card, um, none of this USB type thing that you have these days. Um, yeah, and, and so we basically tried creating an, uh, an open platform for them to use. Um, How did that evolve over the years? Did it change once you left or...? Um, I, th I think they used it for maybe two or three years after I had left, and th by then other students were creating other robots. Yeah. And, and the lab yeah. itself had maybe a dozen different robots. Um, moved on. And then, um, yeah, technology changes really quickly, doesn't it? Like, unless you're there to evolve um, your design with the latest in technology uh, or somebody else does it for you, it just goes away and something else will supersede it. I exactly, exactly. For, for me, it was a good, fun project to work on, so I was what, happy. Uh, like, um, out of that project, what did you take with you uh, eventually? And perhaps uh, I wonder how much of that knowledge do you still use in your current projects, like some engineering principles, perhaps, uh, technology know-how, prototyping, like it could be very general as well. It doesn't need to be specific on the tech. Um, yeah, so, so it was basically uh, problems... Uh, the problem solving that's required to get the electronics to do what you want, um, you know, sensors fail and both today as they did back then. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, you know, how do you cope with the, the, the variances? And it was also the hardware limitation. So there were certain things you wanted to do, but the hardware just wasn't capable of doing mm. that. So coming up with alternate ways or more optimal ways of using the, the existing hardware that you had. So the constraints is, is a big part of engineering, no matter what you do. Exactly, exactly. Um, Constraint management in a way. Uh, uh, one of the um, postgraduate students there and I built another robot and this was for one of his projects. And that one was um, a floor cleaning robot but it used uh, an artificial nose to smell where it had already cleaned. So, so uh, it was quite an interesting one because you had to uh, add camphor to sort of the scrubbing brush. So it was for hardwood floors, not, yeah. not carpets. Uh, and it would lay down a scent of uh, camphor. And then uh, we got a um, one of those, just a regular crystal without the can, and you could coat it with this special chemical that would um, absorb the camphor and change the frequency. And so, uh, so the, the, uh, the sensor was placed pretty close to the ground and then you had a, like a little extraction fan that could suck the air past it. So you could smell if it, there had been camphor or not. And so it would know where the edge of the trail was where it would, was actually cleaning. Wow. And uh, I, I remember after we finished the, the project and um, my friend was doing uh, sort of test runs and he would have to scrub the floor each time with alcohol to get rid of the campus smell. He says after like three hours, he was ready to pass out from <laughs> just all, the of the, all of the fumes. And, yeah. um, it was partially successful, but yeah, it was quite an interesting project. Yeah, uh, because I guess back then the constraint was that, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be... Um, I guess practical to remember the positions or the the path that the robot had taken. Exactly. So you needed some kind of an absolute reference of where you had been and yeah. where you hadn't been. It literally leave a marker on the floor that would be invisible to the Correct. eye. Correct. At least it wouldn't be a visible marker, but it would perform the the job or the, the job of a marker. Mm -hmm. uh, very clever. So that, that constraint then made your colleague to think in a way out of the box. And so, okay, let's right, use right. Yeah, yeah, it was totally marker. his idea. It wasn't yeah. my idea. I just helped him build the robot. Great. Nice. So then that take um, you move on to uh, software engineering, as a lot of other engineers have done. Like uh, you almost describe my path uh, in a way I got into teaching right after I finished my electrical engineering degree. 
which involved a lot of software, uh, both mm-hmm. teaching and development. And it seems like that happened to you. What kind of software did you write? Um, so uh, I actually worked in the, st- after I left uni, I worked at the Australian Museum for about mm-hmm. a year and a half doing interactive displays. Um, and so that was mostly d- done in C and C++. Uh, and then I moved to the US uh, for about two and a half years, um, and I did game development there for consoles yeah. like PlayStation and uh, Sega Ooh. Saturn at the time. Uh, and that was all pretty much C++ um, development. Then when I came back from, from the US, that, that was around 98, um, I joined a company that did uh, military simulations, mm-hmm. so training um sailors how to do their jobs how to operate equipment and so we created simulations for them when they didn't have the equipment um and again most of that was done in c so probably the last 20 years c had been my development um it's so interesting um what do you think is c becoming more important as uh you know microcontrollers are obviously programmed in c uh, and they become more accessible to more people, it seems to me that it's a must-know language, uh, even if you uh, start with Python. Uh, de- definitely, although uh, I've kind of moved away. I'm doing a lot of online development now, so mm. JavaScript has become probably in the last five years the predominant language I use. But obviously for specific you know, jo- uh, jobs or projects, you have to just adapt to the language, whether it's Python, whether it's C++ or C or even Assembler, although that's not yeah. that much these days. <laughs> yeah. um, so, um, so you've got to be a polyglot. Yeah, I, I, I don't see C++ sort of, sort of continuing to, gr- to grow in any particular way. I, I think things like um, Node.js as mm. uh, smaller microcontrollers become more powerful. Um, JavaScript is a much easier yeah. uh, language to use um, and develop in. Uh, but obviously, you know, there's specific languages for specific jobs. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to be a polyglot, really. Uh, even if your domain where you apply your project, where you work on your project is well defined, you still need to have skills in more than one programming languages to be able to be uh, effective uh, totally and to complete agree. a project, yep. right? So um, that's a thing. Um, same thing goes with hardware, I guess, uh, which maybe we should get into that now. So uh, <laughs> let's, <laughs> sure. let's talk about hardware for the next few minutes. So uh, eventually, you said about 13 years ago, uh, mm-hmm. you saw the Mythbusters episode about uh, water rockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you remember what is it that they were trying to debunk in that episode? Uh, I think they were trying to launch a guy. So big water rocket strapped to his, strapped to his back. Uh, there was some, I think, viral video that showed some guy getting launched a long way across the water. Uh, and so they tried replicating oh. that with oh, yes, the dummy so and yeah. kind of just flipped over. And they had re- referenced some other water rockets uh, at the time. And so I thought, oh, this, this looks pretty good. So they um, used uh, uh, Buster for that? I guess they didn't use one of the humans, right? <laughs> yeah. For we um, Buster, so the, we weren't um, quite ready to use a the human. crush the crush dummy Buster, yeah, <laughs> that's right, that's right. So what was the verdict? Uh, was uh, it failed spectacularly? It he failed. just kind of flipped, uh, did a somersault, and uh, so it was nowhere near. So uh, they basically came to the conclusion that that viral video was faked. That there's no okay. way that they could have launched Doctored. someone like that. Fake news, uh, but that was <laughs> enough for you to uh, like get hooked into. Uh, that's right. and, and really what hooked us was that, that launching that first bottle uh, by itself, just the amount of performance you got out of this thing that, you know, has been sitting in your fridge for the last couple of days <laughs> and, and a bit of compressed air. And um, yeah, and that, that's really, that's really what, what hooked us in. Okay, let's, let's talk about then your first water rocket, which is probably the first water rocket for a lot of people. Right, and uh, mm-hmm. I've, I've launched one of those. I think it was um, a Coke bottle. Yep, and we still continue to launch those ones to this day as well. Even single bottle ones are yeah. still great fun. Um, 
So what's the principle behind a... A water... Uh, a, a, like a simple water. I guess the principle is the same for all of them, but let's talk about uh, this one, AC1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So th that's actually the photo of that very first launch. We launched it horizontally. We didn't want it <laughs> launching into the next door neighbor's yard. Of course, um, controlled. And so the, the, the principle of water rockets is you're trying to... Um, expel a reactive mass in one direction so that the rocket flies in the other direction. Um, now, if you just used air, you can compress air that can store lots of energy, but because of its a low molecular weight, it doesn't have mm. a lot of mass to throw in one direction, so the rocket yeah. doesn't perform as well. Um, so we use water to provide that reactive mass, but you can't squeeze water. It's almost incompressible, mm. so you can't store a lot of energy in it. And so you kind of uh, find the balance between storing uh, energy in the air versus the amount of reactive mass that you can carry. And it, for water rockets, that turns out to be about a third full. So of the mm. capacity of the bottle, a third of it needs to be water and two thirds air. And that gives kind of the optimal performance, regardless of the size of that water rocket. That percentage changes a little bit depending on what you're trying to do um what your nozzle size is and what sort of the um, enclosure i guess whether it's a plastic bottle or maybe use other materials as well uh yep so ultimately you're trying to squeeze the air as much as possible but plastic bottles will burst at a certain pressure yeah. so you can reinforce them uh so that they can hold more pressure but reinforcing them uh gives you uh introduces more weight which affects the performance in a negative way so it's always uh this sort of balancing act you, you're trying to manage um probably six or seven different factors to get the most performance out of your rocket um, so a nozzle size affects how fast the rocket will fly um, but then yeah. if you try and fly too fast you're inducing more drag which also affects the rocket in a negative way so yeah the, it, it's and that's really what's interested us all this time it's that engineering challenge of mm. you know pushing materials to their limits to see what you can achieve with uh, this, with just uh, water and air there's a lot of engineering in here but i wonder like in terms of uh, the science behind it as well is it possible to create formulas that you know you can plug in parameters like the, have the capacity of a container it's uh, material um, uh, it's absolutely. shape and, and then it will tell there, you what there, yep. there are simulations that people have created um, that uh, most water rocketeers use to try and um, evaluate the performance of their rocket before they launch it uh, and the maths actually gets very complex behind water rockets. It doesn't seem like uh, it is, but because everything's changing as soon as you launch the rocket, the pressure's dropping, the amount oh, of water. dynamic system, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's, um, it's, you sort of, it's not something you can just have a formula on hand that you, you could just fill in. Um, there's a guy called Dean Wheeler um, many, many years ago. He was into water rockets and he's created a, a really detailed mathematics analysis of water rockets uh, and he created a, a very good simulator that we use to this day uh, that's very accurate uh, predicts all the little subtle things that you see in the thrust curves and so yeah it's way above my head <laughs> all the maths that goes uh, into this but uh, i'm just happy to use the simulations uh, i think i think i found uh, a reference here that's the one yep uh, is using a flash plugin, so I won't be able to show you the simulation. But this is, this is the website, and uh, it's got a pumpkin and rocket. If you if you have a look down physics and maths, and where it says thrust equations, yeah. uh, that one, and so there's a full paper yeah, thrustequations.pdf. <laughs> yes, well, um, and very very detailed analysis. So if anyone's interested in the mathematics behind, uh, this is definitely the go-to place to go. There's um, the science. Oh, wow, well, look at that. Uh, teachers, uh, pay attention here. <laughs> this is like, uh, yeah. what kid wouldn't like love a lesson like this? Hey yeah. kids, well, today like we're I said, going the, to- The maths in this is way above by level. Um, yeah. Uh, but- Yeah, uh, some- uh, there's complex, once you get down into it, there's very complex yeah. uh, equations. There you go. No problem. But, but he, he does a really good <laughs> thorough analysis of 
uh, how the air behaves when it cools. You're going to get condensate, air con condensating, which uses up some energy and sort of really, really um, detailed model. And as a result, his simulator does very good predictions of, of flights. Um, oh, yeah, we, we find probably within 5% of what we see in the real world is what his simulations are. So very precise. Yeah. Uh, I wish those images would work here. The thrust curve. I think those are some broken links. But anyway, no problem. We get the idea. Um, so uh, back back to the picture here that we're looking at. So this is your first launch. There's the mm -hmm. rocket on its way to your pool, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there you go. And then you've got uh, a launching pad, a horizontal launcher. Yep. Okay, this device here, right? So yep. the bottle is resting up the top. Yep. And so what we use, we the nozzle was built out of a garden hose attachment, the thing that goes mm -hmm. onto your garden tap. Uh, yes. And the That's release right. mechanism was the other end of a hose. So we fed the compressed air in through the garden hose. And then we just pulled back, once it was pressurized, we just pulled back on that collar to release the, the nozzle. Yeah. Um, and so we continue simple. to use that system to, to this day. It's very effective, very simple. So if you have a garden hose with that attachment that you use, like for the the, the gardening um, pistol, I guess I'm not sure mm -hmm. how to call that, uh, then you can apply it to uh, to a water rocket and um, have a go horizontally. Of course, if you're doing it in your backyard. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So I guess things like the the shape of the bottle as well, or aerodynamics, do those matter at least in smaller rockets? Uh, yep, very important. Yeah. Um, so one of the, probably the most important things is to make sure that that rocket is stable so it flies mm. like a dart or a, or an arrow. Um, so you need some sort of fins and typically a nose weight on the front of the rocket. So the same way a dart uh, has. Uh, so these were some of the very early uh, rockets where we made uh, ring fins at the bottom. Uh, so these had no parachutes. They just basically came down nose first and bounced. They had a soft nose cone. Um, so what kind of bottle is this? Oh, this is a two-liter bottle. Uh, is it specialized or specially made no, no, to be a rocket? Just, or just like a regular. We, we, take, we cut another piece of a bottle for the nose cone. We glue that on, yeah. tape that on top. So this to improve just, the aerodynamics? Or it doesn't um, do something else? Yep, that improves the aerodynamics and also helps uh, protect the bottle when it actually lands. So a rocket like this went uh, probably 250 feet or so mm. um, at you know fairly low pressures, maybe 60, 70 psi. And, and we, uh, we were really lazy, so we used scuba tanks, uh, both Dad and I <laughs> this are scuba, is scuba divers, and right, so we had is, access yeah. to uh, lots of free air. <laughs> So here's your scuba diving tank. Uh, you mm -hmm. use it to pressurize the bottle. So yep. I guess you just open up the uh, the valve here. Yep. And so that's a pressure regulator valve, so we can dial in what pressure we need. Okay. So you can be precise and can measure the optimal mm -hmm. pressure without breaking the bottle. And you've got those metal rods on the sides just to keep it upright. That's right? exactly and right. Constraint so it doesn't fall over. Uh, we, we, we've had that happen where the sort of when before we had those you sort of pressurize start pressurizing it the whole thing would tip over then you'd run in all directions yeah. because <laughs> now you've got a pressurized rocket cover. pointing at you so you learn through those things yeah. uh yeah learn by mistakes is usually uh, learn the hard way is the best way uh, yep. so never make the same mistake twice uh, and did, did you uh, put this rig together yourself? Is like yes. your construction? So, so I guess part of the, the whole water rocket hobby is trying to make things sort of from everyday material. So whatever you come across, uh, that's kind of part of the challenge. Uh, but yeah, so with rocket development came also launcher development. So yeah. the launches improved over time. Um, Great. So this was uh, 2006. Right, and then yep. uh, got to uh, AC3. <laughs> what's what's AC? Uh, Air Command. So this was before oh, yeah. we started okay. naming our rockets. This was kind of very, very, very early. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so th this this one used air brakes. We wanted to see what would happen if uh, you could open air brakes. Failed miserably, didn't work. What, what's an air brake? Uh, so it had these sort of plastic tabs that would open up 
after the rocket would tip over at apogee. So instead of a parachute, these air brakes would deploy oh, and slow the rocket slow down. down. Never worked. <laughs> so parachute's still the best way to recover a uh, vehicle? Yes, yeah. yeah. So this had a soft nose cone, but uh, yeah, they s uh, slowly started to become sophisticated. Um, these ones that you're looking at, that was kind of a collection. We would just grab any old bottles and start trying everything. Now, one of, one of the things that's really important is you've got to use bottles for carbonated drinks, uh, ones for like still water. They're not meant, uh, designed to handle the pressure, so they'll blow it at much oh, lower I pressure. Oh, I see, see. Oh, that's a good clue. Yeah. Uh, again, we found that out the hard way. <laughs> so, yeah, well, some I, of I these failed very early. So they're not the same bottles. So when you buy a bottle that contains just still water, uh, the plastic and the shape that the manufacturers use is okay for uh, non-pressurized drink. Correct, correct. You have so it's probably uh, either a cheaper plastic or thinner walls, or yeah. huh. uh, they can save a few, you know, half a cent on, on each bottle. It's worth a it. A bit later. Yeah, there you go. No, I didn't realize that. So I, I just want to uh, fast forward to your yep. more recent designs, because then I also want to talk to you about your experience in Queensland, where you had uh, your, you broke a new height record with one of your rockets. So we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But let's have a look at um, some of your... So the, the, these ones started using... So the next step was to try and uh, glue bottles together. Uh, that gives you more volume and therefore you can store bigger, more right? energy. Uh, yep. So that, that one was two bottles. Uh, oh. No, sorry. That, that was the next one. This was our first one that where we put a camera on board. So we had an onboard camera. camera. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that could record, I think, like 320 by 200 pixels for like 30 seconds. That was the max. But that was the lightest camera we could get. Uh, so, so we padded um, it. So what, what I'm looking at here is two bottles stuck together. It yep. seems like the top part is like the payload. It, that's exactly right. So we've yeah. got the parachute on top, uh, right. then the payload really padded. We didn't want to destroy the camera. Yeah. Uh, and then a single bottle at the bottom. So uh, you, oh, you got uh, how how high did this rocket get? Uh, to? This uh, could have been like three hundred feet or so. Three hundred meters. So you got a good view out of the camera. Uh, three hundred feet. So about a hundred meters. Hundred. Okay. So you could see a bit past the neighborhood. We, we could see around the neighborhood. We could see the ocean, which we hadn't seen from that location before. So that, that was good fun. Well, uh, I have, uh, I've gone onto eBay and I found, I think they're called keychain cameras. Mm -hmm. um, actually, hold on a second, I'll show you. Yep, yep. <laughs> so they, they look like this. Mm-hmm. Hang on, I'll, I'll just zoom in. Okay, there you go. So they look like this. I put it in shrink wrapping and okay. my plan is to wrap it or somehow I stick it onto my rocket when I come over and uh, launch it for the first time. And I got this for five bucks and it's, I think, a 600 and... 640, 640 by 480. I don't remember. It may actually be HD with audio, but okay. it's very light. It's got its own battery on it. Um, and you took the case off the... Yeah, I removed the, it because it was like, a keychain. It, it had yep. like a, a bracelet, a bracelet uh, like for your cheek, uh, a ring for your keychain. I removed mm -hmm. all that because it was also bulky. Uh, that, and this is pretty much what we still use, these kinds yeah. of cameras. <laughs> so we'll see how it works, but it's amazing what you can get uh, these days when it comes to this very technology. Cheap, yep. So you can attach that here. Um, I'm going to point mine downwards because I want to see the fumes coming out of my rocket and uh, the ground <laughs> disappearing. <laughs> Best way to do it. Best yeah. Do it. So awesome. This is really nice. So then the other one you were talking about, uh, where you connect two bottles to increase the capacity, would this one be one of them? Uh, we, I can't see the screen. Oh, sorry. Let me uh, share my screen again. Yeah. So this was our very first one where we joined two bottles together. Um, so we had one on top to get more capacity. Yeah. Um, so I guess here you need to be very careful how you join them, right? You don't want uh, leaks. That, that, that's the biggest challenge is yeah. uh, these were actually screwed together with a bolt with a hole in the middle, I think at about a five millimeter hole. Uh, not terribly effective, but it was better than a single bottle. Uh, this is what's known as a Robinson coupling. So a guy... Uh, 
many years ago developed these called Robinson couplings. So the uh, technique of how to do this. How to join bottles base yeah. to base. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that certainly helped with the performance. But the parachute on top was still relying on just falling off at apogee. So when, when the rocket slowed down enough, when it got to the maximum height, that top nose cone would just slip off and the parachute would fall out. How About did you six, detect that? It was, is it some kind of force it develops or n n No, that's emotion? the problem. It was probably 60% effective. Right. So not, not terribly reliable. Um, because um, in the, the few things I know about uh, gunpowder-type rockets. Mm -hmm. um, the solid propellant ones. Solid, yeah, that's the term. Solid propellant is that they've got uh, a burner inside the engine that it's a timer, essentially. And based yep. on the timer, it will ignite another small... Uh, Injection charge, yep. It, yeah, another small charge will, which will boost the parachute out. And that's yeah. how it's deployed. So it's time-based. Where this one didn't have that feature. No, th so th these were very basic. Uh, and yeah, half the time they would crash. And so we'd have to rebuild. That's why you needed uh, so a lab. So pretty, pretty soon after that, we thought, okay, well, we better put some kind of a timer on there. And yeah. so having the electronics background, it was very easy to build a timer-based uh, a little electronic timer that activated a little servo motor that would then deploy the parachute. Okay. And that, that's really from this point on is where we started using them. So then to make that reliable, you used a timer uh, that's... Um, so the timer would start counting down, I guess, at launch? As soon as you launched. So you would arm it while it was on the pad uh, and the timer would detect launch. And typically it was either a G switch or a bit of a string, uh, uh, sorry, a yeah. bit of a spring on a contact. So as soon as it experienced acceleration, that spring would bend and make contact and start the timer. Uh, and then you would use the simulators uh, to predict how long it would take to get to Apogee to give oh. you that time. And then you'd set your time based on that. And if it's plus or minus a second or two, it does, it's, it's not okay. critical. Yeah, but it will go, it will be deployed. Yep. Um, and here I'm looking at one of your <laughs> one impressive designs. So. Very early one, yeah, just lots, lots of gaffer tape. No, no, the, <laughs> this is pro proper, proper rocket engineering. Oh, it's a proper one. <laughs> so you've got uh, lots of duct tape, you've got fins here to stabilize it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so here the rockets are starting to become a bit more involved. Uh, we've got several, uh, several bottles joined together now. Um, so you just so, use the same technique or is there a different technique? Uh, same, te here? same technique. And later on, uh, the, there's a different technique called splicing where you actually glue the, you cut the bottoms off the bottles and you glue the bottles uh, together um, using a special glue. And that's definitely a much more effective um, yeah. way to join them. You get much more performance out of it. Ooh. So this is the J4Y. Sure. And this was... Uh, John, my youngest son, had turned four years old, so we named this rocket after him. <laughs> so you've got all the specifications yes. here. Yep. Um, three bottles. So as we went through different variants um, and tested different things, we would record how much it weighed and how much water it needed. And yeah. um, the the one on the left that you see, this was uh, I think this was Graviton. See the coloured parts of the payload. Uh, those were actually mm -hmm. M&Ms, and we were trying to see what M&Ms do in microgravity. So when you <laughs> shot this, we had a camera at the top looking down at the M&Ms, and so when the rocket would um, slow down near Apogee, everything is essentially in zero G, and so you'd yeah. see these M&Ms floating around inside <laughs> the rocket. Um, and and th that was one of the things we, we've always enjoyed, is putting in sort of interesting payloads and seeing how things behave. And a lot of the time, things might be counterintuitive to what you might think should be happening on a rocket. Um, people will design deployment mechanisms thinking that if the rocket tips over because gravity points a particular way, um, they can activate a mechanism. But pretty much after the rocket burns out, you're in negative G all the way to the ground. You never notice that you pass Free through G. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, some of the experiments we do um, explain that uh, to people, you know, how they behave, that you can't rely on that. So but I guess if you install some sensors, you'll be able to 
to even in real time see how your rocket is doing and what kind of forces mm-hmm. uh, apply on on the rocket and um, and analyze it that way. You just analyze the data instead of... Um, yep. Yeah. So you can fly accelerometers on it, barometers, uh, barometric sensors, um, yeah, magnetometers so that it tells you mm. which direction, uh, it's how the rocket is spinning in relation to the Earth's magnetic field. Uh, there have been even apogee detectors developed. They're called uh, magnetic apogee detectors. And when the rocket launches, it'll sense the direction of the Earth's magnetic field. And mm. when the rocket tips over at apogee, it senses the reversal of that field and can open the parachute. Right, because you can't use the G-forces. You can't use um, like mechanical forces to detect correct. The movement. Correct, correct. So you need to use um, magnetism then, and uh, a compass would help you in that. This is very interesting. So that's, um, that's how... like. You can use engineering to show to, not say young students, but people in general, how our senses, how we expect things might work out, don't because we exactly. are just not familiar with the with the the, the context of uh, a rocket that is in flight. Mm-hmm. We just and no so a, a typical sensor would be like a mercury switch. So people will mount a mercury switch inside of their rocket thinking when, when it tips over, yeah. we're going to see that mercury move. And one of the uh, experiment payloads we flew were uh, mercury switches and we had a detailed camera showing the behavior of those switches in relation to the rest of the flight, how they activate very soon after burnout and don't activate at Apogee. And um, so it was quite interesting to see how, how those behave. Um, and hopefully yeah. educates people not to uh, follow that path. Yeah, follow the data, not your intuition when it comes yep. to uh, science and engineering. Uh, there's another little detail here, uh, mm-hmm. dual parachute deploy mechanism. So we had a little parachute that pulled out a much bigger parachute, so we didn't need to have a, um, uh, a, a massive mechanism to get a big parachute out. You just pulled out a little um so primary is the little one yep. right yep. and the secondary is the big one yeah and all yeah. all it had was a, a the string running behind the the big parachute so yeah, when as soon as the small one would open it would provide enough force to pull the big one out and then so it just so. pulls it out if yep routed the blue string behind the secondary parachute it just pulls it out pulled it out yeah, yeah. So, so you're always trying to look for you know the simplest ways of achieving things yeah. which tend to be more reliable string uh, not always but well practice makes perfect and um, yeah so from this point on we've really been using uh, electronic timers um, for for getting our parachutes out so yeah look at that this is uh, so you're getting very sophisticated here and yeah. so this one had sorry. boosters on the side so it would help get the rocket up to speed uh, and Are then these the main like st- independent uh, right, boosters? so th- those would fall off uh, when they've spent their um, their energy. They would just um, th- basically you had these tubes on the main rocket and these pins pointing up uh, in the boosters, and because the boosters produced more thrust than the main stage, uh, when you launch the whole thing, the boosters would keep themselves in place, right. and then as soon as they stopped producing thrust, they would just slide out out of the right. tubes well, at, so at the most optimal time. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so a, you didn't you, go ahead. So you uh, like that? Um, uh, that uh, how would you call it? Like um, attachment mechanism means that you don't need to worry about any complicated um, mechanisms to separate the side boosters from the main body. Exactly, Just, you didn't need to have sensors when they stop yeah. producing thrust. It's kind of all self-regulating. So. And if one booster was producing slightly more thrust than another, then it would uh, drop off slightly later. Um, so as soon as it, it was done doing what it needed to do, it would fall off by itself. Um, and it's, in, in terms of directionality, you just need to be, I guess, very careful and precise with the pressure inside the bottles so that it eventually would go straight up instead of moving uh, to the side. Yeah, well... <laughs> Can't we, really we've had all, all sorts of failures. We went through that. Um, all of the uh, 
boosters are uh, connected to, to the same manifold, so they all end up with the same pressure. Uh, we found yeah. early if we didn't, if we just connected the nozzles directly, if one booster got slightly more air in it, it would start transferring the water through the manifold into the other boosters. Hmm. Uh, and so we had to end up solving that problem by running tubes up through the nozzles above the water so the pressures could equalize themselves, but the water wasn't right, transferred. Right. Uh, again, you, you don't discover that until you actually build it. And then... Yeah, uh, so true. Like you've got to try these things. That's where like, a lot in engineering is like theory and practice are two different things. And mm -hmm. uh, you may have a great idea about something, but until you actually do it, you just don't really know if it's a reasonable one. Uh, I've solved a lot of problems theoretically. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, when it to comes to practice, yeah, there's, uh, <laughs> other factors will often crop up that yeah, uh, we've totally blown different. up a few rockets, uh, quite a few rockets actually, um, just exceeded the... Um, the tachyon, it sounds like a Star Trek reference. <laughs> yeah, so, so we actually based a lot of the names of our rockets on subatomic particles. We needed some <laughs> yeah. kind of a unique name, so that, that's what we, we ended up going with. So are these your designs? Yes. yes. So you, uh, although they're, they're very similar to what other water rocketeers uh, have done. So there's a lot of cross-pollination of ideas about how, how things are done. The Robinson couplings weren't, weren't our ideas. The... Uh, garden hose nozzles weren't our ideas mm. uh, but what we've always tried doing was uh, building modular rockets so if we damage a part of it you can just unscrew it oh, put yeah. another bit on and um, you've got the electronics up here so you've got a flight computer yep hmm. so what's in here uh, so this was basically uh, measuring that was a timer but it was also programmable so you could program servo motor positions where the motor starts and ends um, and it was also going to be doing uh, barometric logging, uh, although mm. this particular one, we never ended up doing that. Um, yeah. That would come later. Um, are, are their flight computers designed for water rockets particularly, or um, can you build one that, That's a really good question. There are um, lots and lots of flight computers for uh, model rockets. Yeah. And recently I've seen some adaptations of those for water rockets to try and sense um, when the rocket launches and it's got a different set of criteria for detecting because water rockets can uh, sometimes lift off fairly slowly depending on mm. what kind of rocket you're doing. So they've been modified with water rockets in mind, but typically you can use most model rocket flight computers, commercial yeah. ones in, on water rockets as well. Uh, and okay. altimeters now we exclusively buy commercial ones there's you can develop your own there are you know spark fun will sell you uh, barometric sensors that are easy to connect to an arduino yeah, type I've thing seen those. Yeah. but you'd need to calibrate it it's much easier to just buy a commercial one uh, that's already calibrated designed for the job yeah, at least to begin with uh, because i'm very interested like with my rocket i'm looking around for uh, data like i really want to uh to measure what's going on in the rocket during its flight and then to be able to visualize it and get the kids to have a look at it and you know, uh, analyze what's happening here, what's happening there. Mm -hmm. So uh, that would be the first step. Uh, so I'd be very interested in, in a off-the-shelf um, flight computer. And I know that because I've been playing around with quadcopters and drones in general, those are very common devices and easy device and, and mm -hmm. cheap, right? But um, it's a different story when it comes to rocketry because of the Right, and, and so it depends on the sort of hardware that you get, uh, depends on the p performance of your rocket. So if you've got a really high acceleration rocket and you want to measure acceleration, you'll need uh, a flight computer with the right kinds of sensors that might be able to yeah. sense up to, you yeah. know, 50G, um, whereas some of the cheaper <laughs> ones might be 20G or... Um, have limits, um, yeah. so so you saturate those sensors. Exactly. So the, there's the differences. Uh, just mm -hmm. the g forces are some different yeah. accelerations. Um, and a lot of the times, these uh, if you're going, going supersonic, um, a lot of them will have uh, be able to deal with the shock waves um, as they sort of move down the rocket as you go transonic. Uh, that can affect some uh, some sensors as well. So they have filters to specifically filter that hmm. out. Yes, another thing I hadn't realized is that these rockets 
especially the um, solid uh, boosters uh, ones can go supersonic. Mm-hmm. Well, when we are playing around with drones, that like it's like too far to worry about. Like it's not. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Not even when it crashes, it won't go supersonic. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got, um, yeah, I can see your tutorials here. You've got the beginner stuff <laughs> all the way to like, yeah, quite elaborate and advanced uh, tutorials. So I encourage anyone to have a look at those and uh, you know, start tinkering with water rockets. Um, I'd like to ask you now about your um, weekend, last weekend in sure. uh, Actually, week. It was a whole week. <laughs> a whole week, right? right. Tell us what happened. Um, so, uh, the um, events organised by Australian Rocketry. Uh, it's a Queensland uh, Rocketry group, um, and it was a big international event. So, last time this happened was uh, about four years ago, and it's you get people from all over the world. There was uh, New Zealand and Japan, people from America. Germany, Netherlands, uh, and then a whole bunch of people from Australia. Uh, And this time it was also combined with Australian um, University Rocketry Challenge. So there was a group, I think, of about eight, uh, maybe ten universities uh, that had certain challenges that they... they, um, Yeah, this was the one four years ago. and uh, they had like a 10,000 foot challenge, so who can get closest to 10,000 feet. They also had a 30,000 foot challenge, so up to uh, 10 kilometers, that to fly rockets. So these are big, big, big rockets. Um, and yeah, it's basically four days in a paddock uh, flying rockets. Um, they had uh, other events, they had some parachutists come in and, and fly that there was some acrobatics happening as well fireworks so it was a big event um, all centered around doing stuff in the sky but yeah certainly rockets were the the predominant uh, feature um so there was you, some... had, you had one right sorry did you have a, a rocket as well that you yeah we, we brought a whole bunch of rockets um, <laughs> we, we brought our water rockets um and that was the dark shadow one uh we're also working on a a high-pressure two-stage water rocket uh, at the moment, and so we only brought a part of it. We hadn't finished it in time um, to test that, but we had a failure, so um, we've learned from that one. Uh, okay, so but, uh, yeah. so yeah, I'm it, just going it, it, to the new one. Uh, it looks like there's some issue with the uh, security certificate. <laughs> oh, I think, yeah, it just expired on their site a couple of days ago. I think I can still get to it. Uh, so, uh, so the event is organised in way inland. Yeah, Queensland. it's about five hours west of Brisbane, right. just open farmland, well away yeah. from any cities, uh, roads, so there's <laughs> and people. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's what it looks like. Um, I wonder uh, you'll be putting some footage like photos and videos photos, yeah, on people have already started putting putting it up uh, and what, what was really impressive was the the entries by the university students i mean really professional uh put together rockets uh really yeah. outstanding effort on on their part uh they were flying some really interesting payloads on some of them um uh, there was one group that flew like a ferromagnetic liquid and they were seeing what happens in microgravity and I think that there's going to be a research paper based on on the uh, data that they collected on that one there was a two-stage flight I believe to around 50,000 feet Fifth, uh, did you say 15 five, five zero five zero yeah 50,000 wow. um, so I guess you need do you need some permit from the government or uh, yeah, so civil you have to have aviation by, um, You have to have clearance by CASA. You have to have yeah. insurance and fire department and council and landowner. There's, there's lots and lots of behind the scenes paperwork that has to happen yeah. to, to get these events. Um, yeah. And uh, because we get air clearance, aircraft get diverted from that area um, to make sure that they're yeah, flying 50, through that airspace. Fit is where commercial airliners fly okay it's it's above that level yeah it's almost double the the altitude 
So uh, you could just go through four, four, year, four years ago, there was one guy, uh, Nick Lottering, he flew uh, his rocket uh, to, I believe, 66,000 feet uh, at about Mark 3.5 or so. So very serious rockets uh, get flown at these events. So they, and that's why it's worthwhile going through them. Now, the edge of space is 100,000 feet? Uh, 300,000. Th 300,000. So, so, so not not quite there, um, but getting close okay. for just a, a guy building rockets in his uh, garage. Uh, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's not just Elon Musk. There's <laughs> other people up and coming, including Australia. Yeah. You know, for things like that, you do need large open spaces yes. for your prototypes. Um, uh, and and uh, Australia is a great place to do that. Yeah. Um, so this, like, what I take from this event is that there's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of noise <laughs> you know, from uh, these you, engines. Uh, um, you're well away from them. So as the rockets get bigger, they get put further and further away from the crowd. Yeah. Um, so some of the biggest ones you're looking at, you know, three, four, five hundred meters away. Um, so the noise yeah. isn't as bad. Um, okay. But there's, uh, there's a lot of science being done because it's an opportunity for, as you said, university groups and teams uh, to conduct some research that you just can't do in your park mm -hmm. on the weekend. You, you need uh, some, like an opportunity to launch your um, ferromagnetic experiments into suborbit. <laughs> so that's an opportunity there. Uh yeah. I, I think they were saying they had about 30 seconds of microgravity to yeah. which they could do the experiment. But yeah. the, these rockets are sort of at, at this end, sort of at the very limit of what people are capable of building there. You know, having to think about uh, the aerodynamic heating from supersonic flights and, you know, quarter of the time these rockets will sh rip themselves apart um, mm. simply because they're just going too fast. Uh, and so it's it's yeah. a real challenge to to get these things to fly properly, um, but that's where part of the fun is. That's the fun, is exactly. Well, uh, another thing that I really want to talk to you about, and looking at the time now, we are about to hit an hour. But uh, I want to ask you about uh, rocketry clubs, mm -hmm. and um, like I know that you are involved with the rocketry club, and that is. Uh, a club that can help people who are interested in rockets absolutely uh, to absolutely. get into uh, is it a hobby is it a sport i'm not sure <laughs> uh, <laughs> but both, into rocketry both, <laughs> both yeah. yeah so could you tell uh, us so, a bit so about for it? people that are interested in in flying rockets it's the b best idea is to join uh, your local club um, we fly with new south wales rocketry association uh, and there they'll provide you with uh, airspace where you can fly your rockets um, uh, you're not limited to just your 400 feet like you are in a local park. 400, uh, they, you said? 400, 400 feet? feet, yeah, so about 120 limit. meters. Same like drones, uh, drone limits. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, the club will have uh, altitude um, limits depending on the, uh, the site. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also get launch equipment, but most of all, you get the knowledge, the collective knowledge of all the members that yeah. have been flying for many years. So if you have a particular issue, there's always someone there to discuss it. And most likely they'll have some kind of a solution for you. Um, so uh, yeah, definitely that's coming up in a couple, up of, in days, a right? couple yeah. of days, yep. Got one uh, coming up. So this is your club? This is our club, and, yep. And, um, Another nice thing I think that happens through these clubs is that you have the insurances as well. Insurance, you're covered right? by insurance, that's, that's right. Uh, you have landowner's permission, we've got council permission to la launch here. Um, yeah. So really all of your launching needs are taken care of, you just have to bring your rocket and your motors yeah. and, um, and then you've got the safe area to do it in. Yeah, um, so I've got uh, some people like uh, myself, I'm not totally beginner actually i never launched my first rocket but i do have one it's in a box um i'm going to put it together soon so here here's my rocket <laughs> yeah uh, and that, that's a perfect way to start is you yeah. build a few uh, kit rockets and then uh you can move on to building your own scratch built rockets or modifying the kits for for needs um it's very yeah um great it's for very kids addictive. because 
Yeah, uh, kids are very excited to wake up in the morning and, and go. Um, and, you know, learning about um, the engines. And mm -hmm. uh, when I first heard the term engine for a rocket, I thought, wow, this is pretty sophisticated. But then I realized mm -hmm. it's essentially gunpowder in a container. And that's called an engine, but uh, it's it is sophisticated because it is it does have the timer that we were talking about mm, earlier in right. to launch right. the the um, uh, parachute. So there's a lot of learning to be done, but a lot of fun as well. And I think they are having a few sensors on board and a video camera to document your launch and save mm -hmm. it forever. That uh, that uh, makes it uh, like a very exciting event for the family. So uh, yeah, I try to. Um, Probably Saturday won't be possible, but uh, May for sure. Yeah. Uh, eventually, we all stop using our kids as, a, as an excuse for, for going to a launch, and we just launch them. Okay. <laughs> they, they're great for retrieving rockets. <laughs> yeah, they do run around like crazy. <laughs> I think actually that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the uh, rocket to come down so they can run to it and see what's left. Well, okay. Well, um, let's wrap it up, George. Um, what kind of resources would you recommend to somebody to look at, whether web, books, um, videos, to somebody who is interested either in rocket, in rocketry in general, but in particular perhaps in uh, water rockets? Um, just a good way to begin. Uh, starting off simple. Uh, so getting up a launcher that um, can launch your rocket safely um, and starting off with a single bottle. Best way is to go on Google and look for water rockets tutorial. There's hundreds and hundreds of examples of how people... Uh, like yours. <laughs> like mine, exactly. Uh, we're just one of you know hundreds of people that, that put yeah. up uh, instructions. Um, so th that's the best way. You start off simple. Eventually, you're going to realize you need to go to the fridge and look for bigger bottles because you want to go higher. Uh, and then... You uh, when, when you're done using those, you'll go to the supermarket, look for aerodynamic <laughs> bottles. You never look at a bottle again the same way. Uh, and then uh, you start joining bottles together. You, you realize that now the rockets are too big to come down with a soft nose cone. You need a parachute, so you develop yeah. your parachute mechanism. But starting off simple uh, and you get great performance out of even just simple rockets. Um, you know, keep you entertained for years. Uh, before you need to get more sophisticated. Um, so yeah, just Google's your friend. Um, yeah, and and if I understand right, you've got to be prepared to be hands-on. Like uh, it's not something that you read and learn. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's totally hands-on. And like I said, that first bottle that you launch, you'll be hooked. Yeah. Very addictive. Great. Um, and uh, I think uh, you have a YouTube channel as well. I do. Uh, it is. So we'll, we'll be posting some videos from the latest launch up in yeah. Queensland. Um, and get a look on, yeah. So uh, that video running there was uh, was the, the rocket we actually launched again. Uh, this one, uh, it's a high performing one. 500 meters. So and that is a water. So this doesn't look plastic, is it? Is no, it? so this is all made out of carbon fiber. So this is kind yeah. of at the, the high end of water rocketry. Um, we run an electronic payload with altimeters and, and timers. And Is this footage from the actual? Yeah, that's the footage from the rocket. Right. Look at that. It's a long way up. It's, like... it's better if you rewind it just a little bit where you see the takeoff <laughs> rather than... Yeah, yeah. Too, too, forward, forward, forward. A bit more? Yeah, just there. Um, oh, look at that. The water is starting to sprinkle. Yeah. So th this is the onboard footage. <laughs> wow, look at that, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. What kind of camera did you use up there? Uh, what what you had in your hand. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Just a keychain camera. $5, they're, yeah. They're, they're, they're light, they're destructible. If you destroy it, no big okay. deal. Um, it's okay. They're, they're perfectly My biggest concern is that the, the SD card is going to pop out, so I'll be using tape around it. Yep, put tape on it. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, thank you very much for this, George. It's been uh, a real, really uh, good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for um, having me on. Uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, anytime and, uh, I get to talk about rockets, it's good. Yeah, I get the feeling that you enjoyed it too. <laughs>
So you got all your contact details here. So if people want to uh, get in touch with yeah, you, e email's the best way. Mm, um, yeah. Like it says there, I I'll always respond to emails, but it might take me a couple of days. Um, I tend to answer them in in batches every few days. Um, we well, have to go out and launch rockets. So yeah, got to build rockets. And, and <laughs> now then. Great. Oh, well, uh, I'll see you at the next launch. Look forward to it. <laughs> bye bye. Okay, Peter. See you. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with George are available on our website, techexplorations.com. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a gold mine of information in the notes. This podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a maker to be our guest? And of course, you can nominate yourself. Please email us at pa at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Tech Explorations. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.